Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. And now, now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast Podcast. with host A. Trunk. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday and totally free wherever you get your podcast. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're having a good week. Thank you for subscribing and listening to the show each and every week. It is greatly appreciated. And of course, if you're in the U.S. or Canada... I hope you listen to me every day on Sirius XM Volume. That's Channel 106. The show is Trunk Nation, and you can hear me there live Monday through Friday, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Interviews, rock talk features, and a whole lot more. Nightly re-airs of that show, 10 to midnight Eastern. Anything you want, anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. All the content, all the interviews you hear on this podcast originated on my radio show, So if you're only listening to the podcast and you can get Sirius or XM radio, please do because you're only getting a tiny, tiny fraction of what I do on the radio every day live if you only listen to this podcast. Just uh, we cherry pick a few of the interviews and bring them to you here on the podcast, but I hope you come on board and join me and get involved in the show daily on Sirius XM radio. Also a sixth show live on Sirius XM on Mondays on Hair Nation, 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern. And also the syndicated FM show, any of that stuff. Appreciate you connecting there as well. Social media, please connect with me at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and the Facebook page. And of course, I want to make sure that uh, you keep up with everything I have going on with my appearances, music news, and a whole lot more. You'll find that at my website, eddietrunk.com. And upcoming appearances include August 19th, Gatlinburg, Tennessee hosting the first day of Monsters on the Mountain. August 20th, Tulsa, Oklahoma, hosting Poison, Tom Kiefer, and L.A. Guns at the BOK Center. And, of course, Rocklahoma and prior Oklahoma, and that would be Labor Day weekend. Keep up with everything I have going on on social media. 
Hope to see you out there and about on the road. So we have for you another double dip as far as a podcast is concerned. Two interviews for you this week, and I'm excited to bring them both to you and give you an opportunity to to hear them both. So let me get into it with you right now and tell you what we have Uh, on the show this week. I'm going to be bringing you an interview a little later on with Dan Reed. Uh, Dan Reed is a really interesting guy and an interesting story. He was an artist that was supposed to be uh, extraordinarily big. There was a, a ton of hype on Dan Reed at one point. Everybody thought he was going to be the next big thing back in the mid to late 80s. And unfortunately, that just never transpired. And I mean, isn't that a story that is unfortunately way too common in the world of rock music or really music in general? So it just never quite panned out for Dan. He never went the uh, the entire distance, and unfortunately, he never got the success and the acclaim that he was really deserving of because he was extraordinarily talented, but it just didn't work out for him. What happened to Dan Reed? After that all went away is an interesting story. And what he's doing now coming back into rock music is an interesting story. And all of that is coming up a little later on in the podcast. He lives in the Czech Republic, and that's where he checked in with us. And you'll hear that interview a little bit later on in this week's show. But to kick us off, an artist that uh, I have never interviewed before and did not know, and his name is Claudio Sanchez. And he comes from the band Coheed and Cambria. This is a band that I've heard a lot about from a lot of people for a really long time. They've built a huge following. There's a very comic book type base to what they do in terms of a lot of what they do musically is inspired by graphic novels and stuff like that. Claudio is a a New York guy. And we connected and talked for the first time on my show, Trunk Nation, about their brand new album and a whole lot more. So we'll start with Claudio Sanchez from Coheed and Cambria, and second up this week, Dan Reed from the Dan Reed Network. A real wide span and some different variety, but two interesting stories here uh, from the world of rock music and different eras of rock music, but I think you'll enjoy both conversations. We'll start with Claudio right now, Dan Reed a little bit later on. Enjoy on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Claudio, how are you, man? I'm good. How are you, Eddie? Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good. It's long overdue, man. You guys have been at it for what, like 20 plus years, and this is the first time we've had a chance to talk on the air, so I'm glad we could finally do it. Yeah, super cool. You uh, you have been at it, like I said, for a long time, and as I said in my open, I have a lot of friends that are big Coheed fans and have been singing your praises for a long time. My friend Brian Slagle, who owns Metal Blade, big fan. I was with him last week. He's like, you got to ask Claudio about this. And of course, no bigger Coheed fan than our mutual friend Richard Christie. Um, right. Richard Richard was sending me texts last night of things he wanted me to ask you. So before we go before we go any further about your new record and everything, I've got to ask you: Do you have other fans as passionate and loyal and into it as Richard? I imagine you do. I I would think so. Yeah, I mean, a lot of like a lot of our fans are super into like all the facets of, of what we do musically, conceptually. Um, you know, we're really lucky in that, in that way. Um, so yeah, I think, I don't think Richard's alone. 
But has anyone else ever worn a diaper to your show that you're aware of so that they didn't have to miss a second to even go to the restroom? I mean, that's the legendary Richard Howard Stern story. Do you, are you, has that become a thing since Richard made it famous? Yes, Richard is uh, is the only one I know of that has uh, gone uh, that length. But um, but yeah, I, uh, you know I'm well aware of it, uh, and uh, you know, and we love Richard. So he's come to shows. He's uh, he's worn the diaper in in um, you know in jest. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think he's I think he's the one. I think he's the champion in that department. Well, when you first heard that make its rounds on the Howard Stern show, what were your thoughts? Were you were you like honored that somebody would be that into it or were you be honest a little scared? Um, no. I think you know it's it I mean knowing Richard, um like just as the personality before like becoming friends, like uh <laughs> it didn't seem sort of strange if that makes any sense. It it um you know, I, I felt honestly. I felt honored. I thought that was cool that someone was like that into what we do to uh, to not want to miss a second of it. I thought it was. I thought it was cool. I mean, so. <laughs> you know, your manager's a friend, Blaze. I don't know if he ever got the idea to market Coheed and Cambria diapers. You could actually sell them at merch before you guys started playing for people. Could become a thing. You this, could put your logo on them. It could be a whole thing. Yeah, this is a good <laughs> idea. This is a I, this. Uh, I'm I'm. I'm surprised. I'm impressed. I, why hasn't he brought this up to me? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you got a new record coming out tomorrow. Vax is to a window of the waking mind, quite a title and quite an undertaking. I've heard the record. I really like a lot of what I've heard on it. There's a lot of diversity in your music as people know that have listened to you for a while. It's very in depth. It's, it's conceptual in a lot of ways. Tell me about for the Coheed fans uh, that are hardcore like Richard and so many others who've been there with you from the beginning and follow all these stories uh, tell me about this record, and also maybe if you can, Claudio, put it in terms for people who are maybe just discovering the band now. Right. Well, you know, a lot of this material was written, you know, pre and through the through lockdown and the pandemic. So um, I think that kind of uh, really helped inform what the concept would be for this record, and uh, and really what the music um, was going to be, because I thought, you know. Being, you know, being in the situation that we've all experienced, I thought, well, you know, life is too short. And, uh, you know, and I started to see that maybe uh, I, I was posing some limitations to myself and to Coheed um, when it came to the writing process. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to break out of that a little bit. And uh, and so I did. And I think I think a big theme that happens in the, in the record is, you know, these, this couple is uh, trying to navigate um you know, parenthood with a child uh, while they're sort of on the run. And in, in a way, it kind of mirrors the experience my wife and had with our son, you know, through the pandemic, trying to like, you know, uh, uh, be parents in, in this, uh, this strange time. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of it on a very like, uh, sort of, I guess, human way. But of course, you know, Coheed is, is the concept, you know, sci-fi concept rock band. So uh, it definitely gets a little more elaborate when it comes to, you know, coloring the characters, creating, you know, the world and, and building that out. So it gets, uh, gets a little more involved if, if that's something you want. 
Well, you, your your history with the band, every record you've made is conceptual with the exception of one, correct? Yes, absolutely. So when you write this stuff, what comes first, the the lyrical side of it and the side of it being a potential book or a movie or the actual songs? Like, as a writer, what are you writing for, or is it one and the same, really? You know, uh, as a writer, as a songwriter, I'm really kind of writing for myself. I'm really trying to, you know, exercise whatever sort of emotion is uh, – is is in front of me or whatever uh, uh, feeling or thing that, that I've experienced. Uh, you know, when it comes to writing a record, say, like, I understand conceptually where that record is supposed to go, like how I'm supposed to finalize that in the greater scheme of the Amory Wars. And, uh, but it isn't until I start writing the, the songs and sort of experiencing life that that sort of curates what the fiction is going to be. You know, um, so it's really like, you know, it, for me, it, it, first and foremost, it's, it's like uh, it's therapy. It's me allowing myself to write this stuff to, to, you know, to just exercise whatever demon it is that that is in front of me. And uh, and then later I'll sort of, you know, curate it to to work within within the greater scheme of the Amory Wars. So you find that so you find songwriting it sounds like to be very therapeutic for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I created the idea of Coheed and Cambria in the Amory Wars 20 years ago, I did it because I had a hard time being the figurehead of a rock band. Like I thought, you know, I didn't want people to know that what these songs were truly about and and the ref and what they reflected of me, so I created a concept to essentially hide behind and that that's it, you know, um, and uh, and I find that, you know, doing it now 20 years, like I, I can't see doing it any other way. Although there is that one record in our discography where we chose to tribute that moment in time without the disguise of the concept. But uh, but now, uh, you know, as a, I, I mean, somebody told me the other day, you've been doing this 20 years, you're you've built it. You're a world builder. It's it's like it. It was so like shocking to me like oh my god yeah i there's a lot in that's involved on the other side of the music um and so uh so i just i can't see myself doing it any other way because it's just a, i love to exercise my creativity in that department outside of the music for for people who aren't that well versed in the band and again i know you guys have a huge fan base but for my audience there might there may be many that are just kind of learning about your story and this band a little more in depth. What I remember when I first heard the name of your band a long time ago, my initial thought was Coheed and Cambria. Well, that's two people. It's probably a duo. There's somebody in it named Coheed, somebody named Cambria. Clearly, that's not the case. And when you say the Amory Wars, I know that's a, a concept and a theme that's run throughout your, your records and that you've built on. So can you take us through that, exactly what Coheed and Cambria is and what exactly the Amory Wars are? Are they all parts of this, this sci-fi type story that you've, you started out with? Yeah, so, so Coheed and Cambria are essentially the nucleus of all of these stories. They're the Adam and Eves, if you will. Um, the Amory Wars is, so I, I loosely based Coheed and Cambria off of my parents. And the Amory Wars, the, the title is actually taken from the street I grew up on. It's called Amory Drive in upstate New York. Um, 
but but basically uh co-eating can the the first sort of the first third of the Amory Wars from the year of the black rainbow story to the no world for tomorrow story is essentially about like co-eating Cambria's son coming into himself, you know, and realizing uh, that, that he is actually going to be the great destroyer of the universe that they reside in. Um, And, and that's, and that's pretty much it. And it's really about the struggles of that. And it kind of mirrored my struggles with being in co-eating Cambria. Like for a long time, I was very self-destructive. Uh, I didn't, I, you know, I had a hard time being, you know, a, a, a front man. It's not easy for someone like myself. I'm very, very introverted. Um, and so, and so that was, that's what that story allowed me to do. It allowed me to be sort of the self-destructure that I knew I couldn't be in, in, in reality, in life. And then, uh, and then we sort of like we, we go outside of the Emory Wars a little bit in the Afterman story where we tell of the origin of the man that bought the house on Emory Drive, which was my grandfather. Uh, and, and I kind of worked that into uh, sort of the origin of, of the key work, essentially, the, the, the solar system in which uh, the whole story takes place. But now we're into the Vaxis arc, and I very much see myself as like uh, the father figure. And um, and really kind of figuring that sort of thing out. I don't know if that makes a whole lot of sense, Eddie. Well, no, it does. It does to me because, no, I do get what you're saying, because you've created this world and this whole storyline that it sounds to to me like is also therapeutic, is, is both therapeutic to you as a writer, but also as an introverted guy, take some of the pressure off of you as a writer as well and makes you more comfortable doing this because you're writing clearly from a, 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 it's not a personal, there's personal connection to it, but you're also being able to express things through these characters as well versus coming directly from you. I mean, that's what I take from it. Absolutely. Right on. And, and so here's my question. You're a young kid starting out. We all know how challenging this business is and how difficult it is to get going and to build an audience more so than now than ever. So when you're a young kid starting out, like what what is it that makes you want to do stuff this ambitious versus <laughs> sitting in your room and knocking out very accessible 10 songs about chicks or partying? Like th- this comes from a whole different place. What was that influence on you whether it be concept records or science fiction movies, comic books, where does it come from that, that turned you on to this and wanting to make Coheed and Cambria a band like this? All of this stuff. I mean, uh, all of those things, you know, I grew up, you know, through, uh, through the eighties. So star Wars was a huge one, uh, Saturday morning cartoons and things like that. Um, but as far as like musically, I saw Pink Floyd in '94 on the Division Bell tour, and uh, and that you know seeing visuals against the music, um, you know just and at that time I had just started my first band and I just saw that as like a thing that I wanted to aim for and uh, with a high school trip we went and saw you know Tommy on Broadway. And at the time, I wasn't too familiar with The Who, but I w- something about that performance must have stuck somewhere in my subconscious because, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing this, you know. Um, you know, I, 
for me, I'm definitely a fan of progressive music. I think, I think in terms of writing songs, I wasn't, I didn't get, I wasn't brought up with music theory or understanding my instrument. I just learned how to do it by ear. And the songs, when I was writing them then, you know, they were typically longer because I didn't know how to get my point across. Not the greatest communicator in the world, being kind of introverted and shy. It just took a long time. I noticed that, like, I would write these songs and I would get to a point where it's like, well, that's just a question. I haven't answered. I haven't, there's no solution in this song yet. And that's just how I thought of them. And, and that's why they sort of, became kind of long and the progressive tag started to make its way into Coheed. Um, but, but I find that that also like kind of drew me back to that idea of the musical and like finding those bands like Tommy and Pink Floyd and going, you know, there's, there's room for this, you know, what I'm doing isn't that odd. It has, it's not like it's never been done before. You know what I mean? In terms of writing long material, um, so then it just got me into that world more. Um, yeah, no, I don't I don't think no, there's certainly obviously you're not the first band ever to do conceptual stuff, but I could I could be wrong on this, but you may be the first band in my opinion who has carried a concept pretty much throughout your entire career and through every record. I don't know if anybody's ever done that. Are you aware of that? I not that I'm aware of. No. Um So that's pretty yeah, unique. I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. That is that is unique. Um, but uh, but you know, but that's you know, I, I for me, it's like again, I, I and like you like to go back to your question. It's like there's you know, there's Star Wars. There's like you know, this huge like world. It's like oh well, I can do that with you know with rock music. You know, um, so yeah. I mean, I. I I think all of that stuff really kind of inspired me to, to, to do this. And of course my insecurities. Um, so yeah. When you look at the Coheed and Cambria website, the, the front of it, and you see the artwork and you see what's there, it looks almost like a movie poster. And I know that you've got, and I'm, I love physical product. I love the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a CD guy, but whether you're a vinyl guy, whatever your format is, I love physically getting it and going through the packaging and the booklet and reading liner notes. I, I grew up doing that. I still love doing that. So I appreciate how much just looking at your website you put into the graphics and the packaging and the different formats you have coming out for for this record. But the the looking at the imaging, it, it looks like a movie poster. Have you had luck selling this concept and having it produced or have you had some near close calls to having it produced as a film? Um, we have, I mean, at one point, uh, Mark Wahlberg's company or one that he's affiliated with leverage entertainment, um, was going to try to helm that, but that sort of fell apart. Um, but now, you know, 20 years into it, you know, Blaze and I have been talking with, you know, um, some of the people at William, William Morris and potentially like considering to go down that Avenue, um, but, uh, but yeah, nothing, nothing has ever happened yet. But I appreciate that, Eddie, about, about the physical, physical stuff. You know, we really like, for our, our, our fans, we really want to try to be as immersive as possible, you know, um, with, with all the, with the stories, with the, with the relics of the, of the book, or, or you know, I th especially more so than ever, um, because, you know, I think we've grown um, as a band and, you know, we sort of see the vision clearer than we did, than we did then, you know? Um, 
So yeah, I appreciate that. That's super cool. Yeah, I mean, I grew up working in a record store. When you when and and I so I love the packaging and it, it's funny because when Blaze and I talked about you coming on, I said, "Hey, can you get me a CD in advance?" And they did, but what they sent was just basically a, a CDR. The main reason I want CDs is not because I like listening to them, because I but I like going through all the liner notes and packaging. And I'm sure they sent that because I'm sure the f- the finished product wasn't done yet. It all comes out tomorrow. But looking at it online, you've got a few different configurations on this, including a really expansive box set. Can you talk a little bit about what's in that limited edition box? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, so in the box is the the, the story that the the the, con, the companion that tells you of this chapter, you know, in more detail within the Vaxus arc um, that my wife and I wrote. Um, it's it's got some illustrations to help kind of keep you immersed in the story uh, done by uh, an artist by the name of Chase Stone, who did the the uh, the Vaxus one um, box set and album cover as well. Uh, also inside it is a, a relic from the story, which is a quintillion speaker containment vessel. And this is the thing that our main characters are trying to acquire, um, you know, to sort of help their son Vaxus. Um, you know, and, uh, and yeah, and so it's, it's kind of this plasma bulb that sort of resembles, um, the containment vessel of, of this, of this being that they're trying to, to attain. Um, there's also a few other things, a poster, um, you know, the fans that ordered, um, it in a certain time period got to also add their names to, uh, the back of the book as members of the liars club which is a, a faction that, that makes its way into this story. Um, there's also a signed certificate to, um, for those fans who have participated that make them members of the Liars Club. Um, and I believe that that might be about it. Yeah, and I noticed also, and I talked about this before you came on, and I find it interesting, more and more artists are also releasing new music CD, vinyl, and now on cassette. Tell me about right. the cassettes, because this is—is is this purely a collectible novelty thing, or do you find that people actually have boom boxes and want to put cassette tapes in again? I, you know, to be honest, I don't. But I did grow up with cassette four tracks, so there's a soft spot in my heart for cassettes. Um, I find that when I'm on the road. Uh, because I still have these, these four tracks and I still, still record like, you know, capture things off of Euro rack modulars with it, uh, just to get that low fidelity. Um, but I do find myself going out. That's one of the things I do on tour is, is buy new old stock cassette tapes. Um, but I do, I have a soft spot in my heart for them because that's how I learned how to write music is just recording through cassette four tracks, trying to write songs, singing on them, driving my parents crazy. Um, you know, uh, but I, to be answer your question, I, to be honest, I don't know of anyone that that's that's rocking a cassette at the moment. <laughs> yeah, no, but they're <laughs> a thing now. Uh, the more and more people are putting them out. Almost every release is, and I I find it funny, Claudio, just because I am a staunch lover and defender of CDs. Uh, when vinyl started to come back, everybody just for whatever reason thought it was time to shit on CDs, and I think C- CDs, in my opinion, are still by far the best physical format. And so I've always defended CDs when people are like, well, you got to get on the vinyl kick. And I'm like, you wait, CDs will come back. So I find it funny seeing more and more artists put out on cassettes. I'm like, wait a minute, you're trying to tell me I'm 
I'm out of touch, still loving CDs, when now people are putting cassettes, eight tracks have to be right around the corner. You got to figure an eight track is next, Claudio. You got to think, right? Right, absolutely. We got to get you a deluxe package because the deluxe package has the CD in it. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, well, I'd love to get it. I want to ask you one other thing about writing concept records. So one of the challenges in talking to others who have made concept records in their career, and you've basically your whole career is conceptual in the way you've laid this out. Do you, do you find it difficult when you need to go to sell a record that's conceptual to pull a song out as you have with a couple tracks from this record already and have it stand alone as a single? We all know that we're in this world where people have very short attention spans. They click for 30 seconds, they move on. Obviously you, the hardcore fan base for you guys is not like that, but do you find it difficult as a writer to be able to select songs, a three or four minute song that might go to radio or might go out as a video that comes out of the flow of the concept and have it stand alone? Is that a challenging thing for you to break from the concept to, to sell singles? You know, it, it isn't, but it's hard to answer that question because so many years, you know, I always like when I curated these records, I would have moments that I thought were the singles. Right. And like, they were, they, you know, they wouldn't be like, you know, uh, I get it. So at this point in my life, it's almost like I don't even think about that anymore. Um, you know, I allow like sort of blaze and um, and like our A&R to really tell me what they think the single is. And I think they can, the, the thing about our concept is I believe that I do feel like the songs can sort of stand on their own. Um, you know, maybe not so much in the past, but I think off of this record, um, you know, I think, I think I feel okay with it. Um, but sometimes I have a hard time being, uh, the judge of what I think the single is. Do you have an all time favorite definitive concept record that, that is like your, I mean, you mentioned Pink Floyd, I'm assuming you think in the wall or you've mentioned Tommy, but it, you know, whether it be 2112 or operation mind crime or, any anything else like that? Is there are there any other concept records, or is there one that that really was to this day is like that's the one for you? Um, you know, I, I might want to say, and this is I might want to say Pink Floyd Animals. Um, okay. Only only because that's the first time I started to sing was doing a cover of Pigs on the Wing. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, after seeing, after seeing Pink Floyd on the division bell tour, but by, by the way, I, when I saw them in ni in 94, I wasn't, I didn't even know who, who Pink Floyd was. I just knew friends wanted to go and it was going to be a cool experience. And so I went and then that opened me up. So the first record I had purchased at that time was animals. Uh, so it was really my introduction into, uh, into the band. Um, I would have to say I would have to say that I mean if I really but really it would probably have to be a fight between Dark Side of the Moon and and uh, the Wall. I also think that the Beatles are a bit of a concept band in a way, and I you know Abbey Road, the second half of Abbey Road, the way those songs kind of blend into each other, you know, mm -hmm. I see a bit of that in 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 like. I, I definitely have been inspired by that side of that record. Um, so, you know, 
and that also being sorry, I can never you can never pick one. I would have to say Queen Bohemian Rhapsody. Would that be considered a concept record? Uh well, the I guess within the song, it's kind of I mean early progressive and somewhat conceptual. I don't know if the whole album itself would be, but I, I understand what you're saying with that. I mean, I, and I can hear all those influences certainly uh, on your music. The other thing, one other quick thing on the music that I want to ask you, you, you guys have done a fair amount of covers, whether they just be for fun or online or what have you Uh, talk about the decision on the songs that you decide to do covers. Are they songs that you grew up liking or maybe came in late or someone suggested to you because you have a wide range of, of other artists material you've done. You even worked in some Iron Maiden into your live set, I know, at times. So talk about the decisions and where they come from to do some covers. You know, I think it's just, you know, if it moves me. But for the most part, like, a lot of it is, you know, a band like Iron Maiden was a huge inspiration, you know, uh, the, the one of the what are some of the others but like you know we did Adele's Hello and I just thought that that was a cool song you know I don't necessarily listen to Adele's catalog but um you know the Love Gun uh, uh cover we just recently did um you know I, I was a huge Kiss fan growing up I mean I remember my friend and I used watching like Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park like religiously um and uh and like I hadn't really listened to Kiss for a while, and then Travis, our guitar player, son Rory, got so into Kiss these last uh, few years. He's eight years old. Um, oh wow! And his love, yeah, his love for Kiss like re sparked mine. And I'm like, you know, I want to do a Kiss cover, and Love Gun was the choice. And I was like, well, wouldn't it be funny if the Love Gun, if, if our version was a little more subdued and uh, less like, you know less like the original. Um, but yeah, it's really just, a, it's a little bit of everything, you know, it's things that have inspired me, but also things that, you know, at the moment kind of move me. And, uh, and that's, a, that's really it. I, I think it, I, as a hardcore lifelong kiss fan, that was my, really my gateway band. I loved your take on love gun because it was so different. I've always felt like if you're going to do a cover of something, make it your own, have some fun with it instead of a paint by numbers, exact version. And you did completely different for people who haven't heard uh, Claudio and Kohi do kisses love gun. Look it up online because it's, it's essentially a completely stripped down acoustic version. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Paul Stanley even commented on how much he loved how different it was and what you did with it. Yeah, he did. And that was super cool. (laughs) Because that could easily go the other way, too. (laughs) Right. And you're right. (laughs) And you you get a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people, and I know you've covered Anthem by Rush, and there's a lot of people that draw comparisons to your band with Rush, whether it's the conceptual stuff or the, the diversity in the music, the progressive angle. Was Rush an influence on the band? Where do you land on Rush, or were they not so much? They They weren't. You know, um, and fun, you know, I don't know, this might be a long story, but when I first started playing guitar, it was the reason I played guitar uh, was because I was going to be a drummer in a band. And when we flyered the town and got a, and got somebody to come rehearse for us, uh, he just like kind of insulted us. But before he did that, he 
said the only the only thing, if I'm going to join your band, the only thing I ask us to do is play Rush covers. And then that night he insults us and tells us we're a bunch of dreamers, nothing's ever going to happen. And uh, for us, and and so for, and I didn't even know who Rush was. And again, I'm going to be the drummer, right? So I don't want to, but uh, I just, I, I was like, you know what? I don't even, I, I'm never going to listen to that band. And then it's funny, we started getting all of these comparisons to Rush. And then later into Coheed's career, I did open up and start listening and actually went to see Rush on the moving pictures, like anniversary tour. Uh, so I had become a fan after of like hemispheres and 2112 and but yeah it wasn't much of like a, a building block for me um because of that like that one moment in time that put a bad taste in my mouth well yeah and you also don't want to be like the guy with the responsibility of trying to play drums to rush i mean that's that's yeah, deep yeah, water as a kid <laughs> can you imagine here's the thing is we had i didn't even have a drum set just to let you know to really like kind of pet the picture i had no drums it was just a friend of mine two of us were going to be like we're going to be in a rock and roll band and uh you know we we just weren't ready and uh and so when I, when that was said to us, I was like, you know what? My dad's got a guitar in the closet. I'm going to go grab that and I'll play guitar. So, you know. Well, the album is out. The album is out everywhere tomorrow. Vax is too. And uh, uh, be sure a window of the waking mind is the, is the, do I have that right? That's the full title, right? Yes, you got it. Vax is too, a and window of the waking mind. And the and you've got something going on tomorrow at Rough Trade in New York City. Tell me what that is. Yeah, we're going to, you know, it's a record release party. So my wife is going to read uh, an excerpt from the, uh, from the book. Uh, we're going to play some stripped down versions of a few of the songs um, that are on the record. And I believe there's a, like, I, I, I believe uh, the record, we're going to sign the records tonight for those that are participating um, and then, uh, I believe that might be it. I'm not sure. I think it's also going to be, uh, streamed on, on Twitch, on my Twitch page, which is Claudio P. Sanchez, um, at Twitch, I guess. Okay. So people can watch it streaming. If you're in New York city, you can go tomorrow, go to the band's website. Uh, all the ticket links and information is there. And then the tour starts on July 12th, right? Tell me about the tour. Oh yeah. We're, 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 we're actually that's all i've been doing this last week is preparation um you know playing new songs is like kind of difficult you know your body you know you you adjust to the material that you know you create all this muscle memory but then you throw in like all this new material especially for like singing like i don't you know it's just gonna be ah it's a lot of preparation but the tour is gonna be great it's we're gonna bring out some things that we've never done before uh some elements from the story, maybe some video, uh, you know, kind of telling a bit of the story. Um, you know, we're kind of going all out with this one. And, you know, I've never seen your band live, but with all this conceptual stuff going on and all these storylines, do you have a huge production? Are you a band that brings out huge staging or is it more just backline and some cool lights? Um, you know, it's a little, you know, in the past, it, we, we couldn't really, to be honest, we couldn't really afford like, uh, the, the production. Um, but this time around, we're trying to, we're trying to make some things happen, um, to give just a new look to the stage that, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've never done before, but, uh, but most of the time it's, it's 
kind of stripped down. I mean, maybe video here, an emblem there. Um, you know, back in the good Apollo days, we had a bunch of, uh, we had a guillotine that, you know, had wings that opened, a working guillotine. Um, so there have been moments where we've brought production, but there have also been moments where we've stripped it down and made the band the center of attention. Yeah, well, you're playing some great venues, man, and, you know, I got a lot of respect for, for what you do because you, you've done it on your own terms. You've taken a, a really interesting path here. You've built a huge fan base and, and and such a great following of people that love what you do, and I'm I'm probably a little late to the party here, but I really like and respect and appreciate what you do, and congrats on all the success. I know this took a tremendous amount of work and and uh, you know you took you took a path here, like I said, a lot different than writing a three minute pop song. So it's it's awesome to see it pay off like this. So congrats, man. Oh, thank you very much, Eddie. That means it means a whole lot to me. Awesome. Coheedandcambria.com is the website to find everything going on. And again, the album is out and available. Box set, cassette, vinyl, CD. Vaxxis to a window of the waking mind out everywhere tomorrow. Hey man, we uh, we're both on the East coast for the most part, although I'm sometimes West, but one of these days we'll have to hook up and meet and get together. It'd be great to meet you and continued success and good luck with the album and tour. Oh, that would be great. Thank you very much, Eddie. Thanks again for having us. You got it, man. Hopefully I'll see you on the road somewhere soon. All right. Be well. Thanks to Claudio Sanchez. Check out Coheed's new album, which is out now. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. It's one thing falling in love with a house picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. As promised, second interview for you this week, and this one is with Dan Reed. I gave you the setup at the top of the show. Here is Dan Reed checking in with us from his home in the Czech Republic on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Dan, how are you, man? Hey, Eddie. I'm good, brother. Thanks for having me on today, man. I remember the Monsters of the Rock Cruise meeting you there. That was fun. If I recall, you were hanging with Danny Vaughn, my old friend from Taiketo, right? I think you were spending some time with him. Yeah, that's correct. We made a record. Uh, actually, I think we've made the record since I saw you last. Uh, 
called Snake Oil and Harmony. We were out doing tours for a while and decided to start writing some tracks together and went, you know what, let's record these things and put out an album. So, yeah, Danny Vaughn, great guy, great voice, wow. Yeah, did that record come out, Dan? Yeah, it did, like two weeks before COVID hit. Oh, <laughs> so we boy. Were, we were just we were touring in Sweden, and then we were just about to tour the UK when we, we canceled the tour because of everything before the lockdown, but we just saw the writing on the wall. But uh, we're finally doing the album tour, release tour, in late November, early December this year, <laughs> three years later. And the name of the band or the album is what, to look it up? Yeah, the name of the album is Hurricane Writers, and mm-hmm. the name of the act is Snake Oil and Harmony. Snake Oil and Harmony. All right, cool. I will definitely yeah. search for that. I didn't know that that, that had come out. So, so yeah, Dan, I, I, guess, I guess the first one of, one of my first questions for you is, how does a guy from Portland, Oregon, end up living in the Czech Republic, as I believe you have for about 10 years now? What brought you there? Ooh, that's, that's a long story. Um, I'll tell you the shortest version. I got an opportunity to interview the Dalai Lama back in 1992 through a Tibetan man that was living in Portland. And I, I said, can he used to work for the uh, Tibetan government. And he said he could write a joint letter to His Holiness for me. And I wanted to interview him for Spin Magazine. That happened. Had a great time in India interviewing him, but I wanted to go back to India. So about, I guess, 15 years ago now, I went to India to uh, visit Dharamsala, where the Tibetan government is at. Met these wonderful monks that invited me to live at the monastery. So I spent uh, 11 months with them there. And then when I decided not to become a monk and wanted to start writing music again, moved to Jerusalem, built a studio there, recorded the first solo album. Then after three years in, you know, studying Judaism and Buddhism and all this stuff in Islam, I decided to move back to Europe and start playing shows. So that was Paris first for a few years. And then I wanted to live in Prague. Remember that great after the Velvet Revolution playing here with the Stones. This was a city that I would love to visit again. And I got invited to play here at the Hard Rock Cafe and thought I'd spend like a year. Ended up uh, falling in love and meeting my partner. And now we have a nine-year-old son. So this is home now. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. There's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot. So I know. So, I told you. That's the short version. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so how close did you come to becoming a monk? And why did you decide against it when you spent 11 months with them? Yeah, it's music brought me back. One day, one of the Tibetan monks, we were washing our clothes up in the stream. Um, uh, no electricity in the monastery, just candles and um, a lot of gardening and uh, meditating, a lot of that, which was wonderful. But I started writing a song after this monk asked me to teach him We Will Rock You by Queen <laughs> when we were washing our clothes up in the stream one day. He just started singing this beat to me. He could, do you know this song? And he was like, oh, oh, and I was like, holy shit, how does this guy know this song? And he had heard it on a tourist radio, and he said it sounded like a Tibetan chant to him. And if you think about it, buddy, you know, that, that yeah. chant of it is, and I was like, oh, my God, that's so true. And so I went and printed all the lyrics out at the Internet Cafe and brought it to him and started teaching him we'll rock you and bought a little acoustic guitar at this pawn shop and started playing and I wrote my first song from my first solo album called On Your Side as kind of a thank you letter to the monks for inviting me into their world and it was at that point I was like okay either stay here the rest of my life or get back out there and play this song so I decided to start writing music again 
Were you offended that the monk didn't know that you were Dan Reed and didn't ask you to teach him tiger in a dress or something? (laughs) No. no. (laughs) Yeah, the song I'm most proud of, you mean? (laughs) Yeah, I actually, uh, they wanted to hear some of my music eventually. Of course, they'd never been to movie theaters, so they wanted to hear what movies were about. They had never done drugs and alcohol, so they wanted to know what that stuff was about. So it was a good exchange of information, and I started learning more and more about what, you know, their world was. I was such a fan of uh, Buddhism in general. I'm not a Buddhist, but I just like it as far as one of the many religions on this planet. It speaks a lot about there is no heaven and hell. It's more about positive and negative energy, and I seem to I relate to that theory more. Um, but yeah, they <laughs> I wasn't offended that they didn't know me. <laughs> And they weren't offended when I didn't want to stay there as a monk either. <laughs> I think they were happy I was going. So it sounds like you're. It sounds like you're a real uh, a guy that really likes this this exploration, the process of exploration and discovery. And it sounds like it uh, living in Jerusalem and stuff that that took your interest yeah. really into various religions. Is is uh, yeah. that something that always fascinated you? Learning about various religions. I grew up Catholic in South Dakota, going to church every Sunday, and I was an altar boy, and then I started reading as well. And the priest came to me one day and said, you know, when you're reading, it seems like uh, people pay attention, so maybe you should consider getting into the priesthood when you get older. And I asked one simple question about um, whether people, if people don't know who Jesus Christ is, will they still be saved? Like they'd never heard of him will they still be saved? And this priest at that particular time said, unfortunately, they won't be. And I was like, I cannot uh, profess and go out and you know, prophesize about a religion that says that. So I stopped going to church when I was about 16, I guess, because of that, and never was interested in religion again until I started reading the words of Gandhi. And Gandhi said this great thing. He said, we are all Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, and Jews. We just don't know it yet. When he said that statement, I was like, oh, okay, there's some truth there. So I started getting into Gandhi, India, and I went down there to visit Gandhi's grave when I went to interview the Dalai Lama. And so it was like this whole, and the Dalai Lama said that uh, Mahatma Gandhi was one of his big inspirations too. So it was all started feeding into wanting to learn more. Then when it came down to living in Jerusalem, it was really about learning more about why this conflict is between the Muslims and the Jews in general. Um, And I thought, you know, what better place than to live in Jerusalem for a few years to try to learn. And it just seems to me that the different faiths are all arguing about the same top of the mountain. They just uh, have different ways to get up that, up that hill from different directions. And so they're explaining their path to the mountaintop. They just disagree on what the scenery is like on the way there. And of all this information that you've learned through all these experiences, what do you do? You have a plan to have you done something with it? Is it out in your songwriting? Do you plan to write a book? Is or is it just something that was a personal thing for you? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of people have asked me to write a book, and I've sat down and wrote a few chapters here and there. But I don't know if I'll get around to it before I uh, breathe my last breath on this time around. But I do try to. I I try to have it in the back as my foundation when I'm writing new music. So uh, hopefully that's coming through on a few of the songs, you know, at the very least. Well, the new album, which we'll get to here in a second, is called Let's Hear It for the King. 
and it comes mm. out on Friday. Uh, I was I yeah. was just really happy. I know a few years ago you got back to doing stuff with the network after doing some solo stuff. So before we get to the current, I, I want to go back to the past for a second because, you know, yeah. leading into you coming on today, I was talking about you throughout the week with my audience and talking about how I first heard the band when I first saw the band in New York City the early years, I know Derek Shulman, who signed you to Polygram back in the yes, day. Yes. You had all these big tours. There was all this buzz about the group. You were heralded as being the next big thing. And unfortunately, as we've seen throughout history, sometimes that doesn't always pan out. And it didn't for you guys. I guess in a right. nutshell, take me back to those years when you first got signed out of Portland and your observations now looking back on that. And do you have any insights as to why a band like Dan Reed Network that had a, a, a major label behind you, major mm -hmm. management, two different major management companies, all the buzz, right. opening for Bon Jovi, the Stones, whatever it was, where do you think the misfire happened that, that the band isn't a household name now? It's a good question. Uh, I remember when we were first approached by a few labels that came to see us in Portland before Derek signed us, um, they, they liked the fact that the club was packed and that we were playing all original music. Um, a couple would say, you need the hit song and that stuff. But there was a couple moments where um, one uh, A&R person said, you know what, we would probably sign you if you had one less black person in the band. <laughs> and I was, I was shocked to hear that, but it was from somebody that I heard had a very strong ego. Mm -hmm. And I asked why, and they said, because we can't really sell, you, you're playing rock with some funk elements to it, but the rock audience and the rock radio is not going to understand this band looking at you guys. So I said, well, I'm, you know, half Filipino and a quarter Native American. Maybe I should just fire myself as some kind of joke. But <laughs> at, at, at the end, they, I didn't go with them at all. And we just, we said no. So when Derek signed us, Bill Graham, you know, you know, he's one of the most open-minded music, you know, impresarios in the world was, yeah. still is, an inspiration. Um, you know, Derek coming from Gentle Giant and signing from anything from Bananarama to, you know. Bon Jovi. Cinderella. <laughs> and Bon Jovi, yeah, exactly. Right. So it's it was like the perfect team of people that, uh, you know, had some foresight about not caring about that kind of stuff. Um, whether we were rock or whether we were funk or whatever, then I do think there is some truth to the music uh, being confusing to people as well. Because I, I've met a couple heavy metal guys that have been at our solo shows or the new DRN shows that said, you know what, when you guys first came out, I hated you guys because you weren't hard enough. And the more I listened to you guys through the years, I started appreciating your music in a different way. So there was probably a lot of truth to like, you know, us not being quite ready for that rock world. Some well, way. you the Even band, the quit. band from from a visual standpoint. When you talk about the makeup of the band, the band was ethnically really diverse. You talked about yourself being of yep. you know mixed background, but across the board, you, there was an Asian member, there was a black member. Yep. I mean, it was it was across the board. That wasn't that was that necessarily by design, Dan, or did that just happen naturally? Because those are the people you wanted to make music with. Well, it happened naturally, except for our bass player, um, but. He was, we had a bass player in the band and Melvin Brennan, the second, he just kept bugging us to audition. He goes, I know you got a band. I know you got a bass player, but I, he loved Brian James, our guitarist. He had seen him playing around the Northwest for a few years. And he's like, if you're singing and Brian's playing guitar. I want to be the bass player in this band. And we were like, sorry, buddy, we got somebody. 
but he kept, I think it was a couple months. Every time we'd see him out, we were all going out to see different bands at the time. Kept bugging us for auditions. So we said, you know what, just to get him off our back, let's audition him. And he came over and started doing that thunder funk and, and plucking and picking. And it was like, holy Christ, that sound with these songs is awesome. <laughs> and it ended up filling the dance floors and all that. So I had the hard job of firing a band member for really no good reason other than we thought it would be better for our music. I mean, the first album comes out, Bruce Fairburn does it, who was known for all that success with Bon Jovi. And Ritual does well. I mean, it gets you off the ground pretty much. Uh, top 40 yeah, hit, I think. It did well, right? Yeah, I did. I think it was in the top 40. I remember I got to speak with uh, Casey Kasem once. Well, there you go. Then you definitely would have cracked yeah. the top 40. Yeah. And and then sure. uh, second album, Nile Rodgers produced, right? Slam record? That's correct. In New and York, was, we spent three what, months. What was that experience like working with Nile? I imagine you got even funkier. It was really awesome. You know, Niall is, I think Niall is a closet metal guy. I mean, he just, <laughs> he, he air guitars and he's got that grit face on. And he spreads his legs a little bit and he's chunk, chunk, chunking in the air, you know. He loves that stuff. So um, I don't know if we got funkier with Niall or if we got a little more rock because a lot of people say Slam is their favorite album, the second album. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. For me, it's, I, I don't. I don't have any favorites, but it's just it's uh, interesting to hear. We love working with Niall and Bruce Fairburn, of course, for two albums, and Mike Fraser over there at the helm of the board. Well, those are good times as well. Yeah, no doubt. And then the third album under the original deal was a record called The mm. Heat that I also liked a lot. Was there a lot of pressure going into that? Was it sort of did it feel like a a make or break scenario for that record? In a way, yeah, because, you know, a lot of our friends up from the Northwest were ch totally changed the landscape of music with the grunge scene, you know. So here we were uh, make, writing songs about, you know, people coming together and healing the world <laughs> kind of stuff. And we were like, how do we be so positive and idealistic a bit in, um, in a world where the music is getting very dark, you know. So there was, I think you hear that on The Heat that some of those grooves are probably the heaviest grooves we've ever done because we were trying to really get in that pocket there, you know, hearing that sound that we all loved, you know. I do believe that there's something to be said for you guys uh, falling between a lot of cracks and people not knowing quite what to do with you. I mean, I was, I was and still am way more uh, known as a hard rock guy, but I always loved your band right. from day one. And I used to go see you play and, I, I loved the group and you guys were always great live and loved all three of those records. But I, we, there are people, as you Thank know, you. Dan, especially in this business, they feel the need to categorize everything. They've got to put you in a bucket yep. or a box. And when you listen yes. to the Dan Reed network, well, wait a minute, this is kind of too rock for pop. It's too pop for, for rock. It's, it's too mm -hmm. funky for this. It's not R and B enough, enough for that, and you just then you don't yeah. you fall between. <laughs> even though you're doing really cool creative music and you're doing what's coming from your heart, from a marketing yeah. standpoint, it just confuses people. They don't know what to do, and then you're coming out at a time where image was so important. And then okay, what do we do with these guys that all look so different? So I guess mm. that when you think about it, uh, it's unfortunate that people see and hear like that. But that, especially in the day of of it being such a visual time and MTV ruling yeah. the world, that probably played a big role. Yeah, absolutely. I know that uh, 
we we heard it a million times from different people, you know, especially people that worked at Polygram that were out there having to sell the singles, radio stations and stuff. They were saying, oh, we can, you know, that was the feedback. It wasn't hip hop enough. It wasn't soul enough, funk. It wasn't heavy metal enough. So right. it, they just didn't know it, what to do with you. And when we got on stage in front of Bon Jovi, did that whole tour, I think 27 dates or something throughout Europe in 89. And then again with the Stones the next year for like 25 dates, the audiences, we, it seemed like the perfect match, you know? Yeah. And Playing then you and did, Absolutely. you did, you did something which you've maintained if people have seen you now on that third record, which as, as silly as it may sound to some people was a big deal at the time, but you shaved your head. It was, yeah. And, yeah, uh, it was like two weeks before the Stones tour. And tell 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 me about that decision, and you've maintained that look ever since. Now, uh, as a guy that's follically challenged later in my life, are you maintaining it out of necessity <laughs> or because you just like it? <laughs> well, I loved it for – that's a great question. I loved it for like a decade, and then uh, becoming follic, follically challenged yourself <laughs> later in life. And thank God, you know, I was like, oh, I'm glad I prepared for this mentally. <laughs> You got ahead of the curve. You were smart. <laughs> way, way ahead. <laughs> yeah, it was basically, I was getting so much mail um, uh, saying how much they loved our music, but there was also a, a ton of it about my hair and my looks and um, and this hearing backstage and, you know, after shows and stuff, oh, I just love your hair. Can I touch it and touch it and touch it? And so it, it came to this point of where, like, is our music really that good or do we just look cool? <laughs> so I wanted to kind of uh, do something that would uh, shake up my ego because um, I was feeling like a little too much uh, that the rock and roll lifestyle, seeing that around. I didn't drink or do drugs back then. Um, I did that all that after I left the band. But I didn't like the whole, uh, it's all about merchandise and ticket sales and writing that hit song. And you need to get together with somebody and write a hit song, you know. Um as opposed to we we gave you a deal because we believe in your songwriting. Mm. You know, it's like melody, lyric, uh, sitting down and finding the right BPM, the rhythm for that that song and working with your band members. It became less about that and more about selling everything. So well, uh, I thought shaving my, shaving my hair off was the quickest way to cut to the quick on that. And one last thing on the past, and we want to talk about what's going on now. I, and I mm. read this. I read this on um, Wikipedia, and we always know that's not totally right. So let me let me find out about this. But I I, I find this interesting. Th according to what is written on Wikipedia, it says that one of the things that the the band not breaking back in its original days could have been attributed to is that Def Leppard had released Hysteria, and it was not. Right. It was, and you guys were on the same label as Def Leppard then. And that's it was true. not doing well. And I, and that's shocking to people, but I know that having worked in the industry myself at that time, that hysteria <laughs> was not successful out of the gate. And they released it. They, yeah, they released, because I was at the release party for it, which was at a place called the Cat Club in New York City. I think that's, that's probably where you saw us play at the Cat Club. I, I did see you there, but this was, Def Leppard <laughs> did their release party. They had a... Uh, the first single was out called Women from that record, and it was tanking. And there was major panic among the label about what's going to happen with this record. Now, Hysteria is known as their landmark record, super successful, but initially it stalled greatly. And according to the Wikipedia page, it says that 
your label diverted all efforts into making sure hysteria broke and took their eye off of the developing acts, which you were at the time. Any truth to mm -hmm. that? Did you experience that? I don't remember that being going around at the time, but I'm sure the label would do their best to hide that kind of information from the bands they were <laughs> leaving in the dust for the moment. Um, and no one's confessed to that since then. And I'm good friends with like David Leach, who was the head of promotion back then. Um, but he's never told me that story, but I don't doubt it. Cause if you, and what did they, what did that Mutt Lang record cost a million dollars at the time? Oh, it may be more, a million and a half. It took like how million five, and a half. four or yeah. five years, which was an eternity at the time to make too. Oh, yeah. See, yeah. If you're spending that kind of money on a record, I can imagine the corporational, the corporation part of the business was like, all right, guys, you know, focus on this solely. We need to recoup. <laughs> I could see yeah, that no, happening. I know. I know they were panicked. I mean, I, I was working in for a label at that time as well as doing radio. And I remember initially out of the gate that the first single from hysteria was women and it did not perform and coming off of pyromania they were like what oh my god we have a stiff on our hands and there was panic and then of course pour some sugar on me changed the whole trajectory of the record but the whole different yeah. world but at that time i could see i mean that was a thing we all know especially in those days of labels there were priorities there were non-priorities there were records that's yeah. like what are we going to do with this i mean that's the way the labels were structured Absolutely. Somebody wrote me that uh, they had read Paul Stanley's biography, for example. So this is just to show you different perspectives, how everybody sees different things. And Paul had written that they weren't wearing makeup at the time, but the reason their record at that moment, when our first album came out, didn't get the push that it needed is because Polygram was focusing on us at mm. that time. Yeah, he wrote that in it. He wrote that in his biography, and I was like, "Wow, I hope Paul doesn't hate me for that." I like the guy a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it just there is a prioritization, whether the labels want to admit it or not, of 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 these yeah. bands when they come out. You'd think they'd want them all to succeed and put the same effort behind all of them, but we know, and history has shown, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it, there is a priority, and and sometimes when you are the priority, it's wonderful, and when you're not, you're you're begging within your own company to get attention for what you're doing, and uh, I, I think there's there's probably a lot of truth to all of this. Well, one thing I know, I just have no regrets about how it all worked out. I, the people that worked their butts off at Polygram back in the day and Mercury over here and everywhere, was uh, they all meant well and did their best. And I, I'm kind of, in a way, happy I never, ha never had the money to do two mansions and the yacht and the helicopter and the... Because, you know, you, you see a story like just what Johnny Depp and Amber Heard are going through. And you're going, you know what? It's not about the fame and the money. You can still have a crazy life, you know. And I've had a pretty chill life, you know, uh, developing all the way up to doing music again. And I've enjoyed the ride very much. Maybe more so than had we been blown to the roof. Interesting. So, Dan, take us through when you made the decision after all of this exploration that you did and this travel and living yeah. with monks and all this stuff, when did the decision come to you to, I know you did some solo records, but then pivot back to Dan Reed Network and get the guys back together? That was all uh, to, due to the fact somebody invited us to play New Year's Eve 2012 in Portland, Oregon, like do, you, do a reunion show. And I hadn't talked to Brian, the guitarist, for many years. Um, the other guys a little bit, but not that much, and definitely never thought about us coming back together. Our keyboardist, Blake Sakamoto, always thought it might be a good idea. And when we put, got invited to play New Year's Eve, remember the rumor was that the world was going to end in 2012? Yes. <laughs> 
So we thought if there's any time to play a reunion show, it's the day before the world ends. Mm -hmm. Um, So we got together, rehearsed, had a good time rehearsing, but it was the show that uh, really did it for us. Seeing all the faces and the smiles and love for the music. Brian and I were sitting up on a balcony about 3 a.m. on after uh, New Year's Eve struck and said, you want to do this again? And he said, yeah. And it was like on. So we started playing shows, did a couple tours over in Europe, never thinking about doing a new album. But just like the thing with Danny Vaughn, after a few tours, you start going, maybe we should write some new music together. People seem to want it. So we did that first album with uh, Frontiers. That was Mm -hmm. the first one. And then we did the second. Now this is the third album. And we feel this is probably our strongest foot forward since our first album. So the return uh, records for Dan Reed Network, Fight Another Day was 2016, Origins. Yep in 2018 and then this new one four years later that's coming out on friday let's hear yeah. it uh for the king so the the uh the band that you have how many of the guys are in this from the original group four out of five so who don't you have, have new, the new key we have a new keyboard player named rob daker who is also our co-producer and engineer that mixed all the albums for us great talent He's a better guitar player than all of us in the band, but he loves playing <laughs> keyboards as well. So, <laughs> and, and I noticed uh, singer songwriter. I noticed looking at the CD, which I'm holding the CD in my hand. Uh, you mm. did this in Portland. Now you live in the Czech Republic. Did you go to Portland right. to do it, or was it done remotely? No, I went there to Portland. I spent the month. We played New Year's Eve uh, again, a different New Year's Eve, <laughs> and then uh, stayed there for a month in January. And worked on the record with Rob. Brian came and Fred, the drummer, was there. Melvin was there for a little bit, but he did a lot of his bass tracks remotely from California. And then February, came back over here, started doing some shows with Danny Vaughn, and that's when COVID struck. So this record was supposed to come out in 2020, in the spring. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And you've, you've released two videos from it, I think, so far, Starlight and Homegrown. And I've watched both of the videos, and... um Talk talk about making those because I guess with everybody, were you were you're in one of them? You're like on a TV screen, so I imagine that's yep. logistics, right? Because everybody was probably Correct. in different places. <laughs> Absolutely. So we shot that stuff on a green screen here in my home in Prague. I sent it over to Dan Fred, who's a master filmmaker now, our drummer, um, and he edited that together and made it all work like magic. <laughs> but yeah, I cut very- together the. Uh, Stevie uh, Stevie Ray Mays, who's the plays the the chef in the video. Yes. So Dan Fred shot all that stuff. Rob Daker directed the video shoot, and then they sent me the footage, and I cut it together over here and just made it a video about this chef listening to the song, dancing and grooving and cooking. Um, but then uh, the label and our manager said, you know what, it needs an extra little something, and Dan Fred and I came up with this idea of putting that on the TV screen up there. Yeah, it's uh, both videos are on YouTube now. You can see them, and they're both from the album, the full album, which is out on Friday. So, so mm-hmm. you know as well as I do, Dan, this business can be brutal. For you, uh, doing this again, is this really out of a, a passion? Do you or do you hope that at some that some way, not only is this going to appeal to old Dan Reed fans like myself, but but do you right. do you have expectations and hope that maybe? these records and these songs could put the band in the place where they, a lot of people thought they always should be, or is this more just like, Hey, we're going to serve the fans and anybody that likes it along the way is gravy. 
Well, it's an excellent question. I like the music enough that I, if another generation found it um, interesting or fun or, or groovy or rocking or whatever, um, would be awesome. We, of course, would love that. Um, we love playing the bigger shows. We'd like to get back to the States and tour, um, whether it's as a support band for another group that's going to be out there or, um, or, or on our own, just playing small clubs again. We, we love playing shows. Uh, so I'd say we would welcome how, however big those shows grow big time. So you're, you're trying to get out there now. Is there anything lined up currently as far as live shows? Yeah, we're doing a tour here in, uh, throughout the, uh, throughout Europe, basically from end of September, when does it start? End of August into September for three weeks with a band called Reckless Love. Um, mm -hmm. really great band over here. Um, and then we are doing New Year's Eve again in Portland, Oregon. And we were originally planning on getting back in the studio and doing another album. This one had come out a year and a half or two years ago. Um, but now I think we might try to do some more shows in January, February while I'm over there. So that's kind of the plans right now. We're also, uh, by the way, Robbie Hoffman says hello. He said he spoke with you yesterday. My dream mm -hmm. is for DRN to support Extreme in, uh, mm -hmm. throughout the U.S. That's kind of my goal. And to get on uh, MORC would be awesome because then we could kind of see, get a gauge of how many people in the States remember the band and would like us to see. But love to play Cleveland, New York, L.A., Phoenix, Austin. There's a few towns that we'd love to do a little tour with. Yeah, and you guys would be great with Extreme. Robbie's a, a, a close friend and manages them. And I, I remember there was a back in the day there was a remix. I don't I don't know if it was Get to You or which song it was that yeah. Nuno actually played on, Get right? To you. Yeah, Nuno played on Get to You, and I think we also did a version a Long Way to Go. Yeah, um, yeah, Nuno. What uh, he's a god, you know, when it comes to guitar playing and songwriting and stuff. And I've always wanted to work with him more, but we did get to support them a few years ago in the UK. And that was just awesome for the audience, I, I felt. And the response we got back was like it was the perfect lineup, these two bands playing together. So we would love that. Um, Robbie knows. I've talked to him about it a couple of times. So hoping I'm putting it out there in the ether. <laughs> <laughs> well, I talk to him often, so I'll reinforce it for you. Where, where, you, is, the, where, where is the uh, the biggest fan base for the Dan Reed Network in the world? Because you referenced playing in other parts of the world and it, I always find that interesting, too, because I'll often mm. hear from bands like, yeah, well, you know what? Actually, our biggest audience is in, you know, whether it's Germany or Brazil or wherever it is. So as, as somebody who's done a lot around the world, where, where do you, uh, as far as touring opportunities and turnout, where do you feel the strongest yeah. base is for, for the band? Well, it's definitely UK and those two, for sure. They're right on mm -hmm. par with each other. Um, after that, I'd say, uh, you know, all of Scandinavia, we did, did really well in those countries on both radio and those, those tours that we talked about earlier, um, got to play arenas and then stadiums with the stones. So we had a lot of folks over here that got, we got to play in front of. Did you have interaction with the stones when you played with them? Did you get to see them? Did you get to know them? Yeah, there, there, Mick was definitely one day he'd know you and the next day he didn't so that was interesting but charlie watts would come back and wish us luck before every show a very classy gentleman and one thing they didn't a lot of people don't know is that a lot of the all the suits he's wearing in those beautiful photos of the Rolling stones he's he's a tailor he made all his own suits and he tours with us toured with a sewing machine before he passed away 
Really? So I thought, oh, yeah, I thought that was fascinating. And he lived in a one-story farmhouse out in the middle of the English countryside. You know, never played, never bought the mansion. So I, I liked that. That was an inspiration to me. And, he, and it's probably not an accident that he was the most humble, nicest guy in the band. Yeah. Bill, yeah, Wyman. Yeah. Bill Wyman was always telling dirty jokes. He'd come to he'd come up to us before we go on. Like we're standing on the side of the stage going on in one minute. And Bill Wyman would come up and go, hey, guys, guys, check and tell the filthiest joke he could imagine. Sending us out on stage with shit in our head. <laughs> he was crazy. Is there, um, in closing here, is there, a, for you looking back on your career, as far as music, is there, is there a highlight moment, tour, experience, somebody that you met, yes. mu a music hero or something that you couldn't believe knew you or you were in the same room or you had a chance to talk to them? Is there, is, a, is there one or two personal Dan Reed musical highlights so far? Well, there was just one time in uh, Polygram Records in New York. I came into the office, was coming there to do some interviews or whatever, and Robert Plant was there, and I had just shaved my hair. And he, it was right before we were going out with the Stones, so we were in New York on the way heading to Europe. And he said, I heard you done that. I don't think I could pull that off. <laughs> that was just one sentence to me. <laughs> that he had heard I shaved my head was just, oh, the plant is a god. <laughs> The golden god, no less. Gone. The golden god commenting on your sh lack of hair. <laughs> I know, right? So I thought that was awesome. And then as far as shows go, um, it was right after the Velvet Revolution. The Stones tacked on one more show at the end of their whole tour because Mick Jagger was friends with the president of the Czech Republic at the time, Václav Havel. And they figured out a way to put a show here in Prague, and it was the biggest show of the whole tour. There was 130, 140,000 people there, and it was the first, you know, Western rock and roll show ever in this place called Straha Stadium, which was built to kind of, you know, worship the war machine. You could put three. It was only half full, by the way. It holds 300,000 people, and um, and it was just awesome. The rain was coming down, and right before we went on stage, we played our, the first chord of "Under My Skin," of the first song. And rain stopped and the crowd erupted like it was our concert. So, and they were from all over Ukraine. It was awesome. So wow. I, I remember that celebratory feeling of, you know, change had come to this town and there was jazz bars open again and people, you know, didn't have to hide their, you know, politics and their religions and what have you. So it was, it was people in the streets with flowers. And so when I did come back here finally to play that hard, uh, hard rock cafe show, I, had these fond memories of the city and it's just odd that I ended up here. Yeah. My yeah. No doubt. Ever. Well, listen, man, it's great to spend some time with you and talk with you and, and everybody check out the new album. It's coming out on Friday from the Dan Reed network. Let's hear it for the King. And there are a couple of songs and videos already on YouTube and online that you can check out and the full record coming on Friday. I know you and my producer, Joel, were talking, Joel, what's the consensus mm. on what we're going to hear uh, some of as we go out here with Dan? I'm pretty sure we decided starlight, right? Dan. Correct. Starlight. So, so what do you want to say about this track, Dan, before we uh, share some of it with people? Well, this was the first single off the new album, and it's a song I wrote after going to see my my buddy Brian and ACDC play in Berlin. So we were we were there just seeing you know four generations uh, watching this band and that heartbeat thump of ACDC music. I had it in my head and my heart all the way driving home to Prague, which is like two and a half hour drive, 
and got back to Prague, got in the studio 3 a.m. and started writing this song. So that was the inspiration behind it was like keeping that kind of ACDC drive alive and well and at the same time try to say a different story on top of that style of music. Yeah. Well, listen, man, it's great to talk to you. I wish you nothing but the best. The new record really sounds killer. I've of your music for a long time and having listened to the record, it's right in the pocket for anybody that ever was a Dan Reed fan. And hopefully it'll not only pull those folks back in, but also uh, get some new fans and some younger fans. I love that you're doing it again and uh, doing it well. So great to visit with you. Right and on. hopefully I'll get to see you somewhere soon uh, in the U.S. or somewhere in the world. It'd be great to catch a show. Yeah, it would be great. And I really appreciate you having me on today and helping spread the word about the new album, Eddie. It means a lot, brother. Thank you. You got it, man. Take care of yourself and uh, stay in touch. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Have a good one, man. Well, thanks to Dan Reed. I was a big fan of his early records. Cool to visit with him and also good-sounding new music from him as well. Thanks earlier in the podcast to Claudio Sanchez of Coheed and Cambria for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. The radio show and the podcast is produced by Joel Pollack, and we thank him. And, of course, be sure to listen to me every day live on Sirius XM Radio Channel 106, bringing you Trunk Nation, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time on volume, and nightly re-airs of that show, 10 to midnight Eastern, or listen, full shows, interviews, audio, video, and more, anytime you want on the Sirius XM app. Have yourself a great week, everybody, and I'll catch you next Thursday for another new podcast. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around with nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.